0: Let's open up our Bibles together to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. Galatians, chapter 6. Last week I told you we're taking a a break this summer from the book of Romans, and then first thing I had you do was turn to the book of Romans. So this week, Galatians, just to prove that I'm not a liar. Galatians, chapter 6. We're going to be reading... Paul's final words here to the Galatian Christians, starting in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord now from Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who will force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Lord, thank you for this pure and good and perfect gift that you have given to us. pray, Lord, this morning that by your Spirit, through your Word, Lord, that we would be transformed evermore into the likeness of Christ. I pray, Lord, that, Lord, that, that even those who don't know you by your Spirit would be called today to salvation. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your Word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh, Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are taking a short break from the book of Romans, an eight-week summer series that we're calling Gospel Reset. Uh, if you were here last Sunday, you heard the first sermon in that series. This is, I believe, what we need right now at Maple Grove Church. Uh, there has been a lot of change here in the past four and a half years. That, that's always the way it works when a church gets a new Pastor. We have seen a lot of people go, and we have seen a lot of new people come, and as we said last week, what that has created is for all of us, whether you've been at this church for a long time, or whether you're new to this church, you're experiencing something that's a little different than whatever it is that you are used to. Things look different than they used to look, they feel different than they used to feel, they sound different than they used to sound, and it can become easy for us in a time like that to have something of an identity crisis where we become consumed with the wrong kind of things uh, because of that, because of how we feel. We, we can become consumed on the one hand with, with wanting to do things the way they've always been done, wanting things to feel the way they have always felt, the way that we are used to, the way perhaps that we prefer, And on the other hand, we can be consumed with wanting to change everything for the sake of changing everything, because it's not the way we want it to feel, and it's not the way we want it to go, and we want it to feel the way we most prefer. What we need right now is to not be guided by either of those impulses. What we need right now, right here at Maple Grove Church, is to refocus our attention right now in this moment on what really matters. As we said last week, what really matters, friends, is not our preferences, It's not the way I want things to go, the way I wish things would be. It's not our preferred style of corporate worship service. It's not our preferred style of Sunday school class or our cherished traditions of how we've always done things. The call for us right now is to focus on how we as a church can best honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what matters. How can we best serve those whom he has entrusted into our care? How can, how can all of us humbly serve one another, become vital members of the church? How can we be most effective for his kingdom here on earth? And so that's what we're focusing on this summer in this time where I believe it is vital for us to focus on the right things. This gospel reset, this, this reformation as we said last week, of refocusing on what really matters. Last week we we spoke of the glory of God, that the glory of God is the the overarching truth in all of the universe. It is that which God himself is most passionate about, and it's that which we must also be most passionate about. But as we work out then the details of how do we best glorify God, that's what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of the summer. And this morning is part two, and that is the gospel. We are called to be a gospel church, a gospel-focused church. The gospel must be central in in everything we do and all of our thoughts about the church. There are many different kinds of churches in America, around the world, but even in our little community, We see examples of these churches. There are gospel-denying churches, just churches that that overtly deny the gospel. So even within the context of our surrounding community, we have Mormon churches and Jehovah's Witness churches. We have have expressions which would call themselves Christians but are really preaching a gospel of works-based righteousness, denying the true gospel. Brent shared yesterday seven at least seven pastors showed up yesterday representing gospel denying churches in Goshen to give their support and express their opposition to anyone who would dare speak the truth liberal churches that deny penal substitution. They deny that there's, there's any reason that Jesus would need to come bear our penalty. Oh, if that was true, that's divine child abuse. We don't even believe that God has any wrath. They deny the gospel. There are gospel-redefining churches, churches that, that just attempt to... to They don't want to overtly deny the gospel, they just want to redefine it. And so they make it the good news, not of of the Lord Jesus Christ and his rescuing us for sin through his life, death, and resurrection, but it's the good news of health and wealth and prosperity. That's the gospel they proclaim. It's the good news of social justice and and some version of a Marxist utopia that we may be able to achieve together if we all just get on the same page. There are gospel-assuming churches. We see much of this in the evangelical world. These are churches that are orthodox. In other words, they understand the true gospel message. They're not teaching heresy. It's just that the gospel is largely left out of everything that they talk about and everything that they do. It's largely absent from the sermons that are being preached this morning. Pastors assume their people already know the gospel, and so they spend all of their energy they focus all their messages on other things. Five steps to a better marriage. That's what we're going to be talking about. Nine steps to financial freedom. Helpful tips for better communication or better health or on and on and on. It seems like every one of these churches has to do at some point each year a thing focused on popular movies. Maybe you're not familiar enough with church culture for that to drive you crazy, the way it drives me crazy. You're all looking at me like I'm nuts. Listen, I got issues. I'm working through stuff. Jesus is mentioned, of course he is, but he's always a means to an end. Jesus is always a means to an end. He's there to help you achieve your life goals. He's there so that you can live your best life now, so so that you can achieve the most you can achieve in this world. Then there are gospel-embarrassed churches. They know the true gospel. They believe the true gospel. They're just afraid that if they say too much about it, If they mention weird things like the blood of Jesus, if they mention off-putting things like sin and wrath, God's righteous wrath, if they dare to say something like, all men everywhere must repent of their sin and call on the Lord for mercy, if they talk about the fact that there's a very real hell where people will spend Eternity, if they reject the Lord Jesus Christ, they're afraid that if they say too much about any of those things that they believe, that it's going to scare the seekers away, those who are coming seeking the Lord, and and they'll find him. if we can just entertain them enough on a Sunday morning, if we can just do enough things to draw them in and keep them coming and make them like it, surely they will find the Lord if they keep coming these seekers. And so they tailor everything that they do to this category of people, the seeker, They sing the songs they think the seekers are going to like. They don't pray too much because that makes the seekers feel awkward. They preach the kind of messages that they think the seeker can handle. The only problem with this, it's the only one I can see, because from a marketing standpoint, it's a really good one. The only problem I can see is this. According to the Bible, this category of people, seeker, they don't exist. They don't exist. Paul said in Romans 3 verse 11, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. This category of people that I would say most evangelical churches are catering to is a category of people that does not exist. Their strategy has a fatal flaw and they are producing false converts. Then though, there are gospel committed churches. They know how to define the gospel correctly. They are not afraid to talk about it. They have solid theology. They even defend the gospel. You will hear the gospel regularly in these churches, maybe even followed by some sort of altar call or call to faith. But they assume that the gospel is only for unbelievers. The gospel is just the entryway. It's the entry door into the Christian life. But then we need to move on to other things. The gospel's for the unbeliever, not the believer. And so here's what all of these churches have in common. None of them are living up to the standard of Galatians 6. None of them are living up to the standard that the Apostle Paul sets that we just read from Galatians 6. In fact, many of them that we just discussed are falling into the very thing that Paul warns us against in this passage. And so for the rest of this morning, I just want to look together at Paul's closing words to the Galatians. Galatians is a book all about the gospel. It's all about combating the false gospel, about uplifting the true gospel, about the need for the gospel to be central in the life of the Christian, but in the church itself. And at the end, Paul makes his most important point. It's the thing he wants to make sure his readers understand. It's the final thought he wants to leave with them. It's this thing that their church must be built on, and that their lives must be built around. And so let's look at what Paul says now in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Paul would, you you probably know this, dictate most of his letters to a scribe. Paul would talk and the scribe would write. In Romans, when we get there in like nine years, we will see the scribe actually names himself. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, send my greetings so, so Paul would, would, would speak, the scribe would write, but often at the end of Paul's letters, Paul would sign his own name with his own hand. That way the recipients of the letter know, this isn't a forgery, this really comes from Paul. But Paul does something unique in the book of Galatians. As he closes this letter out with a church that he's frankly angry with, Paul does something he doesn't do anywhere else. That is, he takes the pen in his hand and he doesn't just sign his name, he writes the entire conclusion to the letter himself with his own hand. He writes the summary, he writes his final thoughts to the Galatian Christians. And notice he says, I'm using large letters as I write this. Some suggest that that Paul had bad eyesight, and that's the reason he wrote so big that is entirely possible but it's also possible that Paul taking the pen in his own hand wants to make sure that this is the clearest section of the whole letter you cannot miss this you have to see what I'm saying here I want to emphasize my central message again this is the only time Paul ever does this in any of his letters where he himself with his own hand writes the conclusion why is that important well, it's important for two reasons. One, it's important because Paul thinks it's important. He thought it was important enough to say it, so that's a pretty good reason. It's an even better reason, though, that God thought it was important enough to have Paul say it and include it, so we ought to think it's important, too. But secondly, it's because what he says right here will make or break this church, not just the Galatian church, this church, Maple Grove Church. Actually, what he says here will make or break your life. Everything's at stake here in what Paul says. What he says is vitally important. Nothing could be more important than what he says here. And what he says is this. What, what's most important for us as a church and as individual Christians is that we, number one, avoid false gospels, and number two, boast in the cross of Christ. What's most important for us as a church and as individuals is that we avoid the false gospel of self-salvation in all of its expressions. Uh, All of of these expressions that I I referenced earlier of of various ways that churches are are doing things that don't line up with what Paul teaches here, they're all various forms of self-salvation. They just look differently. We must avoid this at all costs, and instead we must boast only exclusively in the cross of Christ. So let's look at what Paul says now. First is we're called to avoid the false gospel of self-salvation. Look at verse 12. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. (laughs) You you may remember in the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing a very particular expression of self-salvation. There are Judaizers, they're called, that have come into the church, and they're telling people, the way to be a Christian is to put your faith in Christ, that's how you're saved, yes, yes. But the only way to do that is to come through the door of Judaism. And so you need to be circumcised. You need to eat a certain way. You need to recognize certain holy days. And so that's what Paul's addressing here. And the first thing Paul says as he picks up the pen in his own hands is that he is going to warn us. He warns us against this tendency that all of us have. He warns us against this, this danger that can so easily seep into our churches. The danger is this. We want to contribute to our salvation. We want in some way to be the cause of our own salvation. The danger is that we're going to try to add something to the gospel. That's the danger that Paul warns us about. And when we do that, we pervert the gospel. We undermine the gospel. We end up destroying our own souls, And in a church like Maple Grove, the danger is not that we're going to blatantly reject the gospel. I'll tell you, we're in no danger of our pastor going to a youth drag event in order to voice his support and speak out against anyone who would dare call it the abomination that it is. Okay, we're in no danger of this blatant disregard for the gospel It's just that we simply add to it, and when you add to it, you destroy it. That's how the gospel works. Arthur W. Pink says, The greatest mistake made by people is hoping to discover in themselves that which is found in Christ alone. That's so true. The most dangerous thing that can happen to you is that you you, you become proud of your obedience. I mean, maybe something even rose up within you this morning while I was talking about this other churches, and one by one you're like, that's not us. Oh no, not here. Oh, it's so easy for us to become proud of our obedience. Proud of the way we do things, which is so much better than the way other people do things. Our greatest danger, our greatest mistake is that we look to ourselves And our obedience instead of looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. This counterfeit gospel is one of the greatest dangers that we face, thinking that we can contribute to our acceptance with God through our own efforts, thinking that we can improve our standing. This is a clear and present danger, even to us that are here in this room right now. It's a temptation that seems to be built right into our hearts. I'm sure most of us have driven at some point a car that is out of alignment. The whole time you're driving, the car just wants to veer off to one side. You have to pay constant attention in order to keep the car in the road and not drive in such a way that you're going to get pulled over if a police officer comes behind you and he's going to think you're drunk. That, that danger that we're talking about right here is exactly the same. It's exactly the same kind of danger. Our hearts are out of alignment. Our hearts are constantly trying to veer off towards self-salvation. They're constantly trying to veer off where we take our eyes off of Jesus and we, and we place them on ourselves or we place them on other people. It takes a lot of focus to resist this drift. The, the danger is, as Paul says, we try to make a good showing in the flesh. In other words, doing something external that contributes to our salvation. Something that we think adds to what it is that Jesus has done in order to earn our acceptance with God, improve our standing with God, prove ourselves to be worthy, whatever it is. In the Galatian church, it was circumcision and keeping the Old Testament law, but we've got our own versions of this. We all have our temptations and our, and our drive for this, John Ortberg describes the church of his youth like this. He says, the, the church I grew up in had its boundary markers. A prideful or resentful pastor could have kept his job. But if the pastor was ever caught smoking a cigarette, he would have been fired. Not because anyone in the church actually thought smoking was worse, a worse sin than pride or resentment, but because smoking defined who was in our subculture and who wasn't as a boundary marker. As I was growing up, having quiet time became a boundary marker measure for spiritual growth. If someone had asked me about my spiritual life, I would immediately think, Have I been having a regular and lengthy quiet time? My initial thought was not, Am I growing more loving towards God and towards people? Boundary markers change from culture to culture, but the dynamic remains the same. If people do not experience authentic transformation, their faith will deteriorate into a search for the boundary markers that masquerade as evidence of a changed life. He is 100% correct. This is what we do. We take our things and we define them and we say, this is what good looks like, this is what bad looks like, this is what, what vital spiritual life looks like, this is what it doesn't look like. It's not that we're always taking those things from Scripture. Whatever Scripture has spoken on, amen. Amen. Yes and amen. No, we're talking here about the other things. We're talking about these things that we want to add to the gospel. We have experienced this in this church with some of the discontent that people have had who have gone to this church for an awfully long time. It's not that a violation of Scripture has occurred. I haven't heard one accusation of that. It's not that there's Accusations of ungodliness or unfaithfulness, it's just that one of their boundary markers got crossed. The church didn't feel the way they wanted it to feel anymore. So they just left and went somewhere else where it would feel the way they wanted them to feel. Or maybe it's you and you haven't done that yet. But it's a boundary marker that got crossed. There's an even greater danger than that, though, friends. There's an even greater danger than walking away from your church. This is the danger, that we're going to pick some external behavior as our contribution to salvation. And slowly, without even realizing it, we begin to trust in our own righteousness rather than the finished work of the cross of Christ. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is, number one, it doesn't work. Number two, it makes you a a, a hypocrite. But Paul says those who are pushing for works righteousness cannot themselves keep the standard that they're arguing for. They're they're pushing for this external work of righteousness to, to assist Jesus in saving us, and they cannot live that kind of life. In verse 13 he says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Sadly, we see examples of this over and over and over again. That politician who fights for the sanctity of marriage publicly and is found out to be living in gross sexual sin. That pastor who rails against certain sins and is found to have secretly been practicing those very sins for years. That's the kind of irony that Paul's pointing here. But Paul is pointing to the the very people who argue for self salvation are the very same people that don't measure up to their own standards. And there's a simple reason for that none of us do. None of us could measure up to any standard that required us to do something to save ourselves. None of us could. That's why the churches that often have the strictest standard, the the most things you need to follow in order to measure up are also the churches that are filled with the biggest hypocrites. It's not because they're worse people than anyone else. I got news for you, every church is filled with hypocrites. (laughs) So is Walmart though, so you don't avoid them just by not going to church Talk to somebody and they I don't like the church because they're full of hypocrites. I'm like, well, you were in the car with one earlier, and I happen to know you were driving alone. (laughs) No, the reason is none of us can. None of us can keep any of the standards that we have set in order to save ourselves. Why? Because it's impossible, because it's a false gospel, because it's not reality. And friends, we're we're not immune from this. You need to hear me. We are not immune from this. The greatest danger that this church faces is that we will veer off without knowing it to a false gospel. One pastor said, unable to preach Christ and Him crucified, we preach humanity and it improved. We're always tempted to substitute a message of self-improvement Of self salvation for the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And friends, any substitute is a false gospel. Jonathan Edwards says this of us the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. We have nothing but a need for God's grace. And so at the end of this letter that has been all about the gospel, as Paul picks up the pen to do something he hasn't done in any other letter, but to emphasize this point so that no one can miss it, he emphasizes, first of all, the importance of avoiding the false gospel of self-salvation, of trying to earn God's approval through our own righteousness. What does he say we should do instead? We should boast. That's the antidote. How do we keep the car between the lines here when it wants so hard to veer off to the side? We boast, that's how. But not in ourselves. We boast exclusively in the cross of Christ, which is the opposite of pride. Verse 14 Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So not only must we avoid this false gospel of of self-salvation, but we must also boast in the cross. That's what's important. That's what we must be about as a church. It's not just the defense of the gospel on one side. No, it is the, the boasting in the gospel, the boasting in the cross, setting our attention on, setting our lives on these glorious truths of the gospel. My greatest hope for my preaching, when it's all said and done, and as a pastor, you get get a wonderful opportunity to have lots of people have an opinion about how much they like or don't like your preaching. And I'll just tell you this, it's not changing. I'll just be super clear with you. This is it, till I die. The whole counsel of the word of God, line by line, word by word. My greatest prayer, my greatest hope for my preaching is that when it's all said and done, the theme that was clearest, that I proclaimed over and over and over again, is that our only confidence, our only boast, our only hope is the all-sufficient saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and that's it. I will not get tired of preaching that. Charles Spurgeon said the best sermon is that which is the fullest of Christ. Preach Christ always and everywhere. He is the whole gospel. His person, offices, and work must be our one great all comprehending theme. It's Christ, the glory of God seen in Christ. To to really understand what Paul's saying here about our boasting, there's, there's three things we need to understand. Number one is we all boast in something. All of us do, some more than others. But boasting is more than just bragging. This boasting he's talking about, John Stott says, it's to glory in, to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in love for something. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory, our boast is our obsession. We all boast in something. We're all consumed with something that fills our horizon. It could be your popularity if you're of a certain age. It could be your intellect, or your appearance, or your influence, or your income, or your security, or your job performance. It could be your religious accomplishments, but we all boast in something. And we need to understand also that our boasting, our obsession, our identity should only come from one place, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a strange statement. Today we think of the cross as something noble. We think of the cross as something beautiful. But in Paul's day, that was not the case. It was the ugliest thing possible. It was the most offensive thing possible. You couldn't even talk about the cross in polite society. Phil Rikens says the Romans considered the cross to be so degrading, disgusting, despicable, detestable, and disgraceful. And Paul says, this is my boast. This thing that our culture hates, this thing that our culture shames, this thing that our culture turns its face on, this thing is my boast. Paul looked at the cross and he didn't see disgust. He didn't see shame. He didn't see offense. He saw God's great love and grace and power. He looked at the cross and he saw his salvation. And he said, This alone is what I will boast in. This alone must fill my horizons. Christ has paid the full price for our salvation. We have been forgiven. We have been justified. God's wrath has been turned away from us, and we stand now innocent before God. Friends, this is our boast. This is it. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, only the cross. We share. We don't have time to really delve into this But if you've been here as we've gone through the book of Romans, one thing Paul has made clear we share zero of the glory for that. We did none of that, we were dead in sin. We were cemented into our slavery in Adam under sin, under the curse, under death, under condemnation. And Christ alone reached down with no help from us and broke us free, brought us to himself, reconciled us to his Father, has given his own spotless righteousness to us. The glory belongs to him and not to us. And Paul says, This is your boast. problem is this, you can't boast in the cross and boast in yourself at the same time. You cannot look to Jesus and look to you at the same time. If you glory in the cross, you have to stop trusting your own merit and trust in Christ alone. John Stott says, only if we have humbled ourselves as hell-deserving sinners Shall we give up our boasting of ourselves, fly to the cross for salvation, and spend the rest of our days glorying in the cross? This is what boasting in the cross does. It crushes pride. The true gospel crushes human pride. It produces worship in us. It produces thankfulness in us. It produces humility in us. Third, then, when we boast in the cross, it changes everything. Paul says that the world had been crucified to him. The cross completely changes what we value and what we care about. I I, I would just challenge you that the, the frustrations that you walk around with on a daily basis, they might be church frustrations, frustrations you've got right now with Maple Grove, maybe with the guy talking right now. Hold those up in the light of the cross and see if they hold any water. Maybe it's just the frustrations you have in your life right now with your husband or your wife or your kids or your co-workers or your obnoxious neighbor. Hold those up in the light of the cross and see if there is any merit to them whatsoever. What is it that causes us to be so disgruntled all the time? It is our arrogance. Arrogance. It is our complete lack of humility. The cross changes that. The cross changes. When it fills our horizons, it changes what we value. It changes what we care about. One theologian said that the cross changes what I fundamentally boast in. It changes the whole basis for my identity. Therefore, nothing in the whole wide world has any power over me. I'm free at last to enjoy the world for I do not need the world. I feel neither inferior to anyone nor superior to anyone, and I am being made all over into someone and something entirely new. This is what boasting in the cross does for us. This is what gospel centrality in our lives does for us and in our church does for us. The gospel changes completely what we boast in it. It changes our identity. It changes our values. When the cross grips us, We begin to see it as the only thing that truly matters, and these other things that consume us begin to fade into their proper place. Now, Paul wants us to get this. Paul wants us to get what matters most. At the end of his letter, when he takes the pen into his own hand, and he says, don't ever think that you can earn anything with God. Put all of your confidence, put all of your boasting in Jesus alone and what he has accomplished for you, and live your life boasting about him. Live your life boasting about his saving work. This is what we must be about as a church, friends. This must be our focus. It's it's essential that every member of Maple Grove Church understands the primacy of the gospel over and above All the other things. There's nothing wrong with having a certain way you prefer things. We all have it. I have a certain way I prefer things too. By the way, not everything we do here is the way I prefer it either. We're all in the same boat. There's nothing wrong with that at all, but there is when it begins to supplant the primacy of the gospel in our lives and the way we think about the church. Oh, there's something real wrong there. Oh, it's essential that we understand the primacy of the gospel. It's essential that we, we understand the exact content of the gospel, that we get the gospel right, that we don't minimize the realities of the gospel as so many are wont to do. It's essential that we we grow in our passion, our zeal for the gospel. Oh, we must never assume the gospel. We must never think we've outgrown it. We must never grow tired of it. Friends, Christians don't get tired of hearing the gospel proclaimed week after week. Jerry Bridges says the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without ever understanding it. We're experiencing the joy of living their entire lives by it. I can't tell you how often I've talked to Christians who grew up in churches, Bible churches, that one day, maybe as an adult, have a conversation with me where they say, How did I never hear the true gospel in my whole life growing up in my church? We were a Bible church. How was it that this wasn't proclaimed? This is everything. What a sad reality, friends. The gospel is the only essential message. It's the power of God for salvation. You understand, scripture refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the power of God and only one other thing the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It must be our primary message here. It must be our passion as a church to proclaim this gospel. Let me just close by giving one, I think, beautiful illustration from the life of Martin Luther, actually from the death of Martin Luther. After his death, an artist, a German painter named Lucas Cranach, painted the final portrait of the great reformer, Martin Luther. And you may have seen this painting, you just don't know it. But it's a painting of Luther preaching. And as Luther preaches and the congregation looks on to Luther, The only way they can look at Luther is to look at what Luther's pointing at, and that is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cranach's point in the painting was, this is what Luther was about. It was about pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. This, friends, must be the driving aim of what we are about as a church. Pointing in all that we do to the Lord Jesus Christ boasting in this glorious gospel as our core identity and letting everything else, literally everything else, be a servant of that. And friends, if we'll do that, the Lord will accomplish a great work in us and through us. I can assure you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. I thank you for this church. Lord, what a precious and dear church, this is to me. Lord, I thank you for these people. Lord, those that are here and those that aren't here right now, Lord, they are, are precious saints, and I am so grateful for them. I pray, Lord, for each one of us that you would cause us to be increasingly faithful, that you would cause us as a church, Lord, to, to be focused on the right things, to glory in you, our God, to, to worship you with joy, that the joy of your great salvation, of your gospel, the joy of the glory of our God would fill us, would motivate us, would be the driving force in all that we do. When a world calls us angry and hateful, Lord, that we, what would, what would be true of us is that we would be joy-filled Christians. When the slander comes, when the accusations come, what would be true of us is that we are thankful, humble, worshiping Christians. As our prayer for ourselves as a church, I pray God that You would accomplish that by your spirit. It's only you who can do this work in us. Lord, I do thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this glorious news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place, on our behalf. Pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful ambassadors in every arena to which you have called us. Lord, that you would be glorified in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.